I said this at the end of the last episode, and I'll say it again now. There sure was a lot of information available in the Doreen Vincent case as far back as May of 2001, when the article Where is Doreen Vincent by Jason J. Barry was published in the Record Journal. It's disturbing, the information about Mark Vincent that was revealed in that article. But what is even more disturbing is that after all that information was published, nothing happened. There's also another layer to this that I want you to keep in mind. June 15, 1988 has always been the date that Doreen is said to have gone missing. But remember, 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road was in the middle of nowhere. The Vincents had only just moved into that house. They didn't know any of the neighbors. Doreen had missed her last weekend visit with her mother, Donna. There were no check-ins during that short time the family lived at that house. And then Doreen doesn't get reported missing until June 18th, when Donna insisted that they call the police. The date of June 15th, 1988 is 100% the word of Mark and Sharon Vincent. There were no other adults who could verify or corroborate that date, meaning we don't actually know what the date was when something happened to Doreen. And of those two adults who knew what was going on inside that house and knew the events leading up to the moment when Doreen disappeared, only one of them is still living, and that is Mark Vincent. I would love to know whatever it is that Mark Vincent knows. What does he carry with him to this day that every report about this case has missed? So in this episode, we're going to learn a bit more about Mark and Sharon. This is Season 2, Episode 9 of Faded Out. I'm Sarah Dimio. Let's begin with someone who was quoted several times in the 2001 article, Detective Thomas Hanley. Hanley was assigned to Doreen's case in July of 1989, after he himself expressed an interest in the case. We read for you a portion of the interview on July 17, 1989, between Hanley and Mark Vincent. Hanley left the Wallingford Police Department in 1991. And at the time that the article was published on May 6th, 2001, he was the chief of police up in Middlebury, Vermont, a position that he still has to this day. So as we were in pre-production for this season, I reached out to Hanley through email. With all the insight that he shared with the Record Journal in 2001, my hope was that he would share more with us on the podcast. So I asked him for an interview. This is the response that I was given. Quote, Sarah, I decline the invitation. The case is under the purview of the Wallingford Police Department and whichever investigator is assigned by Chief William Wright. It is entirely inappropriate for me to make any public comment on a case under the jurisdiction of another agency. Thomas Hanley, Chief of Police, Middlebury Police Department. I then responded, 
Thank you for the response. I understand you don't want to speak on the podcast, but I will keep the invitation open. Your name does come up in the story, and one of the members of our team got copies of part of the transcript of the taped interview that you did with Mark, as well as photos of evidence from the gun arrest, all of which I attached. Since we'll be reading these in a future episode, I hope we can ultimately get your insight. Thank you. And I attached pictures of the transcript that we read in Episode 7, along with photos of evidence that Jessica also found. A few days later, I got this response. Quote, Hello. I continue to get requests, even demands, for an interview on the Doreen Vincent disappearance. I don't know if any of these inquirers are affiliated with your podcast or not, but my response remains unchanged. I will not return phone calls on this case, and it is pointless to continue to seek an interview. My published response is as follows. In quotations, I decline the invitation for interviews. The case is under the purview of the Wallingford, Connecticut Police Department, for which I am no longer employed. It is entirely inappropriate for me to make any public comment on a case under the jurisdiction of another agency or on any open investigation. I have not been a party to this case for 28 years and have not seen any notes or reports since then. The unauthorized release of information is inappropriate or even unlawful and any misstatements can undermine the investigation. Please direct any requests for commentary on this case to Chief William Wright of the Wallingford Police Department. Regards, Tom Hanley. And I left it with him at that. He said it would be entirely inappropriate for him to make a public comment, but it didn't seem to be inappropriate in May of 2001, when he was already 10 years out of the Wallingford PD. So Doreen's case still remains cold. However, the article does state that Hanley keeps a picture of Doreen on his desk, and he remembers the case number by heart. That's good enough to call it a day, I suppose. Let's move on to the most troubling piece of information revealed in the 2001 article. The accounts of sexual abuse committed by Mark Vincent on Donna's two younger sisters, Carol and Debbie. In the article, the sisters kept their names private, but when the team and I met the family this past January, they were very open about the entire ordeal. Here's Jessica Fritz-Aguire asking Carol and Debbie about the early days when Mark and Donna were first together. How long were Mark and Donna together when Doreen was born? Two years. Three years. Okay. Okay. Three years on and off. And so were they, they were dating for a while before the baby was born? Yes. Okay. Yes. What did you think of him when you were younger? Oh, he was not my favorite. No? <laughs> no. No. He was actually a little bit abusive to me and my sister. Okay. Yeah. So how old were you when Doreen was born? 13. Okay. And he was abusive to you even as a young kid like that? Yes, he was. Um, did Donna know how you felt about him? Well, we told my mother. We, my sister and I had went to my mother and talked to her, and then we went to Don, Then my mother went to Donna and explained everything that happened. He'd come up at night, and we were sleeping, and he used to touch us inappropriately. Oh, so he was sexually abusive. Exactly. Okay. Was he living in the house at the time? Yes. He lived downstairs with Donna and the baby. Okay. Which was Doreen. Okay. And she was born in 75? Yes. Okay. And you were a teen. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the result of that? Did he have to leave the house or? Yes. 
and well that was the end of the relationship except for he used to come and visit her on the weekend okay Doreen. he'd come so, and get her when he felt like it so he and donna weren't together anymore no and she broke was that the end of the relationship after she found out what he was doing with you mm. did they go back at one they point, went back and forth for a little while. Every everywhere since Doreen was born, mm -hmm. um, my parents had made a little apartment, and my parents worked nights um, when we lived in New Fairfield. Okay. And so, my myself and my sister used to stay in their bed, and that's when he would come up and do inappropriate touching. And once we moved to Danbury, we were only in New Fairfield for one year. Um, they moved into a trailer. Donna and Mark? Yes. Okay. And, um, somewhere along the way it came out, I told my parents, and, uh, they separated, and Mark, being who he was, took me aside and said, um, if you tell her it's not true, I think it would give me money. I, I, I can't remember mm -hmm. exactly what it was, but it was a little bit older than maybe a little doing my own thing at that time. So, you know, money sounded good, you know, I'm yeah. like 13, 14 maybe. And um, he told me to tell my sister that it wasn't true. They went back together for a very short time. So you did tell her it wasn't true? I did. Okay. She knew I was lying. Yeah. And my sister knows me. Probably a few months after that. So Doreen was probably about, I'm going to say maybe f tops four years old. Okay. Yeah. Okay. They were together probably about three and a half years. Okay. Starting yeah. when she was, say, 13 or so? Right, because um, she was 16 when the baby was born? Um, yes, she just turned 16. She just turned 16. They pretty okay. much were made to marry. You know, it was, you know, either you get okay. married or... You give the baby up for adoption, that he chose to get married. So not only did Mark molest Carol and Debbie, he paid them money to deny that it ever happened. Doreen's two aunts were 13 and 11 years old at the time that this abuse was happening, right at the age that Doreen was when she went missing. It was right after this that Debbie said to Jessica, and would later also say to me, that that was how she knew that Doreen was probably sexually abused as well. Here's another piece of my conversation with Donna. And do you think that Mark had been sexually abusing her at any point? I believe so. Okay. He, when we and him were married, okay, he, he tried to have sex with both my sisters, and they are both younger than me. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, by five or six years, I mean, really? I, I, I was 16, and they're, you know... 11 and 12 or whatever, yeah. you know, I, I mean, and it is like the 16 year old, I mean, I'm thinking he's cheating on me, but it mm -hmm. was so much more than that. That's disgusting. Yeah, it's, it's a predator horrible. behavior. Yeah. Exactly. And I should have realized that or somebody, you know, maybe smarter than me should have mm -hmm. really, you know, and thought about that when, when Doreen was, because it never even, it, it 
stupid as it sounds, it never even occurred to me. It really, really, I did ask her. I did ask her, you know, and she denied it. But it took me until she was 12 years old to even ask her. I should have asked way before that, you know. Yeah, it, but been. also it's like you're too close to the situation too, so you don't think to ask certain questions at that time, I think. Yeah, but you should. But for the family, and the 2001 article states this as well, they don't believe the abuse ended with molestation. Here's Carol and Debbie. I asked Donna this, and she gets the impression that there may have been some sexual abuse done by Mark. Did you ever get that impression from him? Like there was maybe something sinister going on? Definitely. Yes. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I think I read in one of the newspaper reports that he admitted to, like he photographed her in her underwear. That's right. Oh, yeah. that's right too. I forgot too. about that. Yeah. I forgot mm -hmm. about that too. Did you he know did about that, that when it yeah. happened? Um, well, we thought it was a little strange at the time. Yeah, I, I don't know why the, how that came about. She wanted to wear a bathing suit, and he thought it was wrong. Oh, so, so why he, don't you put your bra and underwear, and we'll just take pictures. That's right. That's I mean, right. it was like a sick thing to do. That's mm -hmm. right, sick. I forgot. Because mm -hmm. she wanted to wear a bathing suit, and she, wasn't she wanted allowed to, to swim. Wear a bathing suit. She's, okay. She was a good swimmer. She used to, my mother had a pool. I mean, something she liked to do, and then... I don't know. So that was his reasoning for doing that. She wanted to put on a bathing suit. So he said, like, well, if you're going to dress like that, let's, you know, put your bra and underwear on, too. And pictures. Sort, yeah. And sort of, like, that was his... To it, well, It's gaslighting is what it is. Because, you know, to, to be able to abuse somebody in that sense and then convince them that it's their fault. Like, it's like they're the right. ones who caused it. That's right. Yeah. Yes. But you wanted it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't believe she ever left that house. No. And if she did, she left by him. That's the only way she was getting out of the house is by him carrying her that she didn't make it. And yeah. something happened. He might have made her fall or something. She hit her head. Mm -hmm. Maybe she was pregnant and he was he burned her diary a couple of days before that in the driveway. So mm -hmm. he did some really stupid things that really show that there's more to the story mm -hmm. you know that and you just mentioned something too that she might have been pregnant like it's a possibility like, maybe it was in the diary she was gonna tell mm -hmm. that's why he didn't let her come the weekend that's why you know we i mean all these things run through your head you don't know but mm -hmm. they uh, do i do remember my mother asking her because there was a few incidents that had happened before and and it was enough for my mother to ask her if he um, ever touched her in, mm -hmm. inappropriately. And um, she said no. But I'm wondering if she was just scared. I mean, she, and it's embarrassing, too, lied. when you're 12 years yeah. old. You to know? grandmother. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, to grandmother. So you, you think there's a possibility Mark could have gotten her pregnant, too? Like it could have gotten... She was 12. I yeah. mean, she was young. She was developed. It was possible. While there's no way to prove this, the family will go so far as to say that maybe Doreen was pregnant. She was developed, and according to Donna, she had gotten her period. Mark had also burned Doreen's diary while they were living at the house on Whirlwind Hill. It is very clear, and it has been from the very beginning, who the family believes the guilty party is. I think some of the uh, newspaper reports and various reports try to spin it like Doreen 
was kind of a troubled uh, kid, she, as it yeah. were. Well, she had it rough. She really did. I mean, you know, I mean, here she is, like, living with me sometimes, living with him sometimes. It, it was hard. It, I'm sure that was hard on her uh, emotionally, you know. But when we were together, we had a good time. We talked and laughed and, you know, did things and, you know, and I felt like she was kind of open with me. Maybe, you know, I'm sure, sure certain things she kept inside, you know. I knew she had a little scrapbook and she used to, because he was a born-again Christian, he didn't like her listening to certain music, you know. So, of course, when she's with me, you know, we got that music on and stuff. And, um... She she would want, re, you know cut out little things and do yeah. little scrapbooking you know like of the stars and um, she loved Alyssa Milano and uh, there was some gospel singer she learned to like because he would let her listen to that one and and I mean we it, we were good together we yeah. really were we were getting there anyways I mean I know that she was twelve and I was in my twenties but I mean it it was. We were getting better. We were getting good. And she was, she did have a hard time. But she had a rough life. She yeah. really did. I mean. So it wasn't as if she had any behavioral problems or anything like that or. No, she was just very, um, she wanted a lot of attention. And, you know, and, and that was it. She really didn't have behavior problems. She wasn't a bad kid. Not at all. And so I want to know about to the um, report that it says in a lot of places that he pushed her into a window that day. Um, was that characteristic of Mark to have sort of a violent outburst like that? Or what do you make of, of that? That he, by his own admission, he said that he had pushed her into a window and the window broke. I didn't even so. know that for a long time. I didn't. Um... And supposedly she walked out that door. And Sharon had said she couldn't have gone out that door because it locks from the outside and Doreen didn't have a key. Yeah. Or it locks from where? Yeah, the, the latch from the inside right. that required a key. Yeah. Right, right, right. And so I didn't even know about that for a while after. Not for a while after. But is it characteristic of him? He really wasn't violent he like I said he never hit me um he would he was scary though mm -hmm. in, in his own way he was scary he would I don't know how to describe it he was and it's been so long yeah. um he he would just like put put a fear into you without actually he wouldn't put hands on or Okay. Anything like that, just you, know, you can't wear that shirt, you know, you can't wear it, you're not going there, you're not doing that, yeah. and then you, you know. yeah, and well, it, it says in a lot of places too that uh, they had gotten he and Doreen into a, a disagreement, and which was the reason for her leaving on foot that night. Um, was she the type to? to get into arguments like that with him, or like, not fight that I with knew that? of, not yeah. that I knew of. I didn't see them together that often. Okay. Because, I mean, if I would, I'd go and pick her up and I'd leave. I didn't talk to him very much at all. What do you, what do you feel happened that night? I just want to know, what, what's your opinion on what happened that night? I feel like he did something to her, either accidentally. I, mm -hmm. I don't know if he would deliberately do it. I don't want to believe 
that anybody could deliberately do something like that. But I and I I believe that maybe maybe she was pregnant. Um, really? Yeah. Um, because I I do, you know, thinking back to what he, you know my sisters and stuff, you know, and uh, that's what I think. I think it was either accidental or I don't know accidental or on purpose. I don't know. Okay. So we can stop. We can stop now. <laughs> we can stop. <laughs> Thank you. I try to hold. <laughs> <laughs> When my executive producer, Joe Aguirre, first made contact with Donna, Donna shared that back when she was with Mark, he was an atheist, a far cry from the born-again Christian that he presented himself as since the early 80s. During the months leading up to the premiere date of this season, we knew nothing on the specifics of this case, only what can be found by anyone in newspaper articles and online searches. We had never spoken to Donna or her sisters or her younger daughter, Stephanie, at that point. Our first objective was simply to make contact with all of Doreen's family members to have their involvement in telling this story. So on December 22nd, 2018, with still more than a month before this season's premiere, as we were still establishing contact with family members, Joe found a phone number for Mark. Mark didn't answer the phone when we called him that evening, but we did get to hear his voicemail greeting. In the voicemail greeting, he introduces himself as Mark from an organization that I will not name. After we heard the name of this organization, I looked it up on Google. It's a Christian-based recovery program for teens and adults overcoming substance abuse, and it's down in New Haven, Connecticut. Mark works for this organization. So after that, Christmas went by, and a few days after that, on the 27th, Joe tried calling Mark again. Again, he didn't answer. We were greeted by the same voicemail message. So Joe left a message again, as he did the first time. And after he hung up, we talked for a bit, not knowing if Mark would ever call back. And after a few minutes, the phone rang. It was Mark. Mark said that it was just a courtesy call. He didn't want to speak on the record. But Mark and Joe spoke for about six minutes on the phone. They touched on a few topics of the case, but Mark wouldn't go into any details. The takeaway was he declined to participate in this podcast. And that was the one time that our team got to speak to Mark Vincent, December 27th, 2018. So what else do we know about Mark Vincent? He currently works in New Haven at a Christian-based recovery program. He is a licensed home improvement contractor. He has many addresses linked to his name from over the years. Currently in New Haven, as well as in Milford, Connecticut. There's also three prior addresses in Milford, and there's also two prior listings for apartments in Bristol, ranging from the years 1999 to 2005. There's also two addresses in Portland, Connecticut and Danbury, Connecticut during the 90s. Prior to that, we have 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road in Wallingford. There's also another address in Wallingford on Pond Hill Road, which I would deduce was Roseanne Poloni's house. And prior to that is his former address in Bridgeport, where he would have lived with Sharon and their two little children, Paul, born in March 1985, and Sarah, born in July 1986. And that's also the address where Doreen lived with them. 
172 Cleveland Avenue, Bridgeport, Connecticut. Currently, Mark is married to a woman named Kathy, and they have a son, David, born in 1994. We'll have information on Sharon Vincent coming up next. I want to take a moment to thank my friends at Crooms Creations for their support. Original home decor based out of Wyndham, Connecticut. You can get custom-made works of art for your home, and it's all made out of repurposed materials. All one-of-a-kind and all recycled woodwork. So pay them a visit at croomscreations.com, and you can put in your custom order on their Facebook page. That's Crooms Creations. C-R-O-O-M-S creations and find out what they can add to your home. Sharon Vincent's motives throughout this whole story have been unclear from the very beginning, and unfortunately, we can't ask her about any of it. We can never find out from her why she kept so many of Doreen's things at her house and at her brother's house, and why she never told police. We can't ask her to tell us in her own words what she remembers from the day that Doreen went missing, or what had been going on in that house in the days leading up to it. All we have to go on, as far as anything in Sharon's own words, is her statement to police, dated July 8, 1989. In that statement, she says, I married Mark Vincent five years ago, so that would be 1984, when Sharon was 23 years old. Sharon was born Sharon Rockwell in June of 1961, and she died in May 2007, just shy of turning 46. Out of all the searches that our team has done, we were unable to find an obituary for her. So we kept saying to each other, you know, people don't just die at the age of 45, and there's no obituary. So for a while, we contemplated that maybe it was a suicide, because no matter what happened to Doreen, Sharon died with a lot of secrets. She's a very contradictory sort of character, because we also found out Mark was not Sharon's first marriage either. She had been married prior to meeting Mark. She also adopted this born-again Christian lifestyle. She also shows no emotion or concern after Doreen's disappearance and proceeds to take the majority of Doreen's possessions, including the ones she was reported to have left with. So in the summer of 1988, Mark moves out of 1316 Whirlwind Hill Road and moves in with Roseanne Poloni, also in Wallingford. He does not leave any contact information with anyone, not his wife Sharon, not Doreen's mother Donna, not even the Wallingford police. After Mark leaves Sharon and their two small children, Sharon is forced to go on to welfare because she cannot make rent. So she moves to Danbury, She takes several of Doreen's things with her, and for a year, these items stay at her new house and at her brother's house in Newtown. Then in the late 90s, Sharon, along with her two kids, moved to Franklin County, Ohio. There are a few different addresses linked to Sharon in Ohio, one in Columbus, where she lived with her sister, Elizabeth Rockwell. And while in Ohio, Sharon marries a man named Edward Hutchings and they stay married up until her death. Paul and Sarah Vincent continue to live in Ohio to this day. I told you a minute ago that we were unable to find any obituary for Sharon. Well, in lieu of the obituary, we got the coroner's report. Jessica Fritz-Aguire called the Franklin County Coroner's Office in Columbus, Ohio, 
and they emailed the report to her within 10 minutes. The coroner's report reads, Sharon Lee Hutchings, date of death, May 21st, 2007. Facility or address of death, 4210 Parkview Lake Drive, Columbus, Ohio. Race, white, sex, female, age 45. Date of birth, June 1st, 1961. Cause and manner of death, hypertensive cardiovascular disease. Time interval, years. Other significant conditions, diabetes mellitus. Manner of death, natural. The body was in a moderate state of rigor. The investigation was done by the Columbus Police Department. Next of kin is her spouse, Edward Hutchings. Under opinion, it reads, quote, The subject was reportedly found unresponsive lying in her bed. The subject had a history of hypertension, severe diabetes mellitus, and high cholesterol. External examination reveals no apparent evidence of trauma or foul play. The toxicological analysis reveals no apparent cause of death. Therefore, death is considered to be related to hypertensive cardiovascular disease. Diabetes mellitus is considered to be a contributing factor. Under external examination, quote, the body length is 66 inches. The weight is 190 pounds. The hair color is brown. The eye color is blue. The body is received clothed in a white t-shirt, dark blue shorts, and pink panties. The body is that of a somewhat obese, early middle-aged looking white female. Under evidence of therapy, quote, four EKG pads are seen, one on the left arm, anterior aspect, one on the right arm, anterior aspect, one on the left mid-abdomen, one on the right mid-abdomen. And under scars, quote, multiple vertical stretch marks are seen, mainly in the lower abdomen, end quote. And the report is signed by Tay Leong on MD. Forensic Pathologist, Deputy Coroner. What a way to be found. Sharon died of heart disease at the age of 45, after a life of hypertension and not taking care of herself. Imagine being a 12-year-old girl in 1988 under Mark and Sharon's care. And this is the other problem we face when unsolved cases get older and older. People start dying. Sharon died in 2007 when Doreen's case was almost 20 years old. Roseanne Poloni, the woman that Mark moved in with after he left Sharon and their two children, has also passed away. She died in 2014 at the age of 63. So the question is, where does that leave us? Who else is left to give us further firsthand insight into that time period? Well, as it turns out, Back in January, just before the premiere of this season, we heard from an old girlfriend of Mark Vincent's who met Doreen when Doreen was just three years old. She reached out to us all the way from Florida when she found out that we were going to be doing this podcast. And suffice to say, she had a lot of opinions to share about Mark. When I found out that his daughter was missing, I read it in the paper and... It wasn't long after that I was getting out of a relationship that I contacted him. And I was more concerned about her missing than he was. Both I and Jessica fritz spoke separately to this old girlfriend. And we will have our interviews with her 
over the next two episodes. Until then, please join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash fadedoutpodcast. There's also a closed group that you can request to join called Followers of Faded Out. We're also on Instagram as Faded Out Podcast. And please become a patron on Patreon, where you can get access to my weekly blog, as well as participate in weekly discussion topics. This week, we are discussing Mark and Sharon. The link to Patreon is in the show description. Thank you for joining me for Episode 9 of Season 2. I'm Sarah Dimio. See you next time. Faded Out is written, hosted, and edited by me. Background research by Jessica Fritz Aguirre. Produced by Joe Aguirre, Jason Panette, and Maxwell McGee of Clovercrest Media Group. Today's episode was sponsored by Crooms Creations. Visit their website at croomscreations.com. Visit clovercrestmedia.com for more on Faded Out, as well as other great original podcasts. Subscribe to Faded Out on iTunes, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts.